All right, there we go. Hello, everyone. How's it going? Team here, and this is BXGS Weekly, bringing you all the best news. Um, <laughs> I just had to screw it up right from the beginning, right? This is BXGS Weekly, JavaScript news podcast, bringing you all the best JavaScript news of the week in a podcast form. And this is episode 105. We do have a pretty good amount of news today and a ton of releases. I guess coronavirus is making everyone stay at home and productive, so... <laughs> Let's just, uh, you know what, let's just dive into that. As usual, the first section of the day is getting started. We got uh, four articles here today, with the first one being introduction to D3.js. Now, I would add that this is actually an interactive introduction to D3.js. I think I already talked about Observable HQ at some point, but uh, it's a really neat playground that basically allows you to construct articles slash visualizations with inline JavaScript. And um, this article takes advantage of that by basically showing you how you can work with D3.js with inline examples, which you can edit as you want, right? So there's like, uh, for example, we got, there was a chart somewhere here. There we go, there's a bar chart, right? And uh, there's the data for it. So you can actually just uh, go ahead and adjust this in any way you want and just see what's gonna happen. So like there's the width, you can tweak that and see the chart change in real time, which is uh, super neat in my opinion. So if you're interested in data visualization and wanted to learn D3.js, but were confused about all the things that it basically does, because it is a very intimidating library, let's be honest. And this is a really, really good spot to start. And well, you know, the interactivity of it just makes it all better. So if that sounds interesting, do check it out. Next article we got here is React Hooks with Firebase Firestore. A really nice introduction to using uh, Firestore with React Hooks and how you can attach it to your own React components. Uh, it's very basic level, so there's just not, nothing like super complex here. It's uh, if you are familiar with Hooks and Firestore, it's not gonna be, uh, you know, you're not gonna get any new information here but if you are just getting started and you are confused as to how you would use uh, firestore or any other database really with uh, hooks this is a really good write-up so do check this one out next article we got here is how to create a custom toast component with react.js now again this is an entry-level article that basically teaches you how to make the toast components that show you various notifications uh, in this case, there's four of them, success, danger, info, and warning. Again, very basic level. So if you are just getting started with React, this is probably a pretty good uh, starting thing. If you are already coding in React for some time and understand how the uh, portals and stuff like this work, you won't really find anything new here. It is a pretty good article, very detailed and everything. So if you are just getting started with React, make sure to check this one out. It's probably going to be helpful. And the last article we got here for today in the getting started section is building a GitHub app with Node.js. So that's a tutorial that teaches you how to build a GitHub app. Uh, if you didn't know, the GitHub has this app integrations that you can, uh, well, you can build your own, right, to extend the GitHub functionality and do something whenever the user uh, interacts with GitHub in any way, pretty much. So it's like, you know, the pushes, pulls, uh, issues creating, whatever. There's like a ton of uh, various features. And uh, obviously you can create your own custom apps and this is uh, the article guides you through doing that using Node.js. So if you ever wanted to extend GitHub functionality and was thinking, okay, so you know, how do I do that with Node.js? Then this article got you covered and basically explains how to do everything from creating a new app on GitHub to setting up the Express API to 
figuring out the authentication and so on and so forth. So if you are interested in that, do check this one out. It's pretty good. All right, that covers the getting started section. Now we got articles and news. We got uh, three articles here. The first one being Webpack 5 Module Federation, a game changer in JavaScript architecture. So this is a write-up about one of the features of the upcoming Webpack 5 release, which is the Module Federation, as the title says. And uh, the idea is that you are gonna be able uh, to... So right now, if you use Webpack, you know that it allows you to do like, you know, to extract common code, do those chunks that can be shared across the pages and everything. But what if you have a larger setup where you use the Webpack or maybe even the same Webpack config for um, a bunch of different applications that are monorepo maybe or something like this, right? Well, this is the new feature that allows you to federate the common chunks from a set of applications, not just one app which means you can share the code across like, I mean, I guess, you know, you would have to have some sort of a very complex product. Then again, if you do, this brings some very cool things to the table. Like you can essentially have your own mini content delivery network that has, I don't know, 90% of your code. And then you have your apps that serve only very specific things and Webpack splits that automatically, which honestly sounds pretty mind blowing. So, okay, there's some, um, scripts are blocked let me just fix that real quick but yeah if uh, like you know if you're working on a very big um apps on, a, on apps that have multiple parts and have to share the libraries i would highly recommend reading through that because it seems like it's going to be quite a game changer there is uh, like this is a really cool idea and again not everyone's going to need that uh I, most or most of people i imagine are working on just one app that is you know big or monolithic or whatever. And um, there's probably not that many companies that have this kind of setup, but if you do, this is probably gonna be quite a game changer for you. So do check this article out. It outlines basically how the model federation works, wh what it's gonna do, how do you set it up and so on and so forth. So it's really, really cool. Okay, next article we got here is how I made a 3D game in only two kilobytes of JavaScript. Uh, so that's, that's yeah, that's one of those. Um, we, I, I don't know about you, but I personally love reading articles about the uh, entries, you know, for the JS 1K jam, JS 10K jams, and so on and so forth. And this one talks about making a 3D game in just two kilobytes of um, JavaScript for 2K plus jam. And uh, the game looks like this basically, right? So it's very straightforward. It's, it's um, I guess a runner, uh, you would say. And um, it's actually, so it looks 3D, but it's actually built using plain canvas so it doesn't really have any webgl or whatever it's just canvas and a lot of mathematics which is uh, on its own pretty mind-blowing to be honest uses mouse control and then a lot of math with vectors to render this pseudo 3d and uh, generate the map and so on and so forth it's really cool to read like there are some tricks that basically make it smaller make it nicer make it linear pre-rendering and drawing the skies and everything it's like it's just crazy. Every time when I read something like this, it just blows my mind. <laughs> so if you're curious about how exactly was this built, how exactly does it make it look like 3D? What is what kind of tricks are used to decrease the size and so on and so forth? Uh, do check this one out. It's actually pretty nice. And then there's obviously the minification and the segmentation that's showing exactly um, 
what happens in these bits of code. Like the minification is just insane, to be honest. But yeah, that's um, that's a thing, and and it actually works, and is under two kilobytes, which is uh, even crazier. Okay, the last article we got here for today is uh, why Svelte is our choice for a large web project in 2020. It's a very detailed write-up on why the company in question, so the author here, I honestly don't remember the company name, I think I picked it up somewhere in Hacker News, and they did mention it there, but um, that's not important right now. So it's basically the reasoning on why they picked Svelte over React, Vue, and well, any other JavaScript framework, right? Uh, I think this is a really good article for people who are not familiar with Svelte or maybe heard about it, but are unsure why would you pick it over React, why would you pick it over Vue, over Angular, over anything else, what kind of advantages it has, what kind of disadvantages it has. It's a really well-written article that outlines just about any points out there that you might want to know about Svelte, about its ecosystem, about the tooling, about the performance issues, and so on and so forth. So if you're interested on weighing in basically whether you should use Svelte or not right now for your project, then I would highly recommend looking through that. It's actually a really, really good uh, piece of text. So there we go. All right, that is it for the articles and news. Now we're coming to the tips, tricks, and bit-sized awesomeness. We got uh, four things here today. So the first one being DuckDuckGo Tracker Raider exposes hidden tracking. A uh, terrifying title, but in reality, it's a really neat piece of software. So uh, DuckDuckGo, if you never heard about them, is a search engine, right? That is uh, privacy by default, as they say. Basically, they don't track you. They don't write any logging or whatever. It's totally anonymous. And all of their search results are based purely on the query you send, right? And uh, in addition, they have a bunch of tools they release, such as DuckDuckGo Privacy Browser, DuckDuckGo Privacy Essentials extensions for the existing browsers, mobile version and whatever. And they sort of also build around the whole like privacy thing, blocking the trackers, uh, figuring out the hidden trackers and so on and so forth. Uh, while doing that, they actually track a lot of websites that users visit uh, and, you know, they do the crawling and everything. Uh, and by doing that, they actually started collecting data for each specific website that outlines what kind of trackers do those website includes. And what they did is they just said, okay, you know what? We have all this amazing data. Let's make it public. Let's, let's just open source it and allow people who build uh, extensions or ad blocking lists or whatever to use this data to make privacy better, right? To improve the privacy, to uh, decrease the use of trackers and so on and so forth. So the article goes a bit into a bit more details on how exactly they do all of that. They also show what exactly is going on. And uh, then they basically show uh, some statistics for the trackers. I mean, obviously, as you imagine, the Google and Facebook are like leading the, the top 10, basically. Uh, but the cool thing is that the whole thing is publicly available. The data uh, that they scraped is publicly available on GitHub. And if you are interested, you can basically go through it. There is also a data generator that you can use to see how exactly it was basically made. And yeah, you can just use that to create your own tracker blocking thing. Again, I'm guessing we're going to see those added to the like ad block, you block origin, whatever soon ish, because it seems like a very nice data source for this kind of stuff. Now, but anyway, if that sounds interesting, do check out the article and the repo. It's all published under permissive licenses. So it's a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial share alike. 
which means that you know as long as it's not commercial you can basically do anything uh, and you attribute it but uh yeah there you go it's actually pretty neat uh, and the source code is also there uh, under apache 2 license which is also kind of neat so you can basically reproduce the whole data set if you like to again that will probably take ages but uh, there we go all right uh next thing we got here is the neat tip on uh, using um inputs and um, what to use instead of number inputs in uh, cases that when you just want to enter like for example the numeric input mode something that i did not know existed but something that actually sounds extremely helpful um there is a picture here let me just do that real quick as a picture that's showing the numeric keyboard this is i'm always annoyed when i browse from the mobile and then they ask me for a 2fa token and they basically it opens the normal keyboard which you know it's not exactly the handiest way to enter the one like the numeric code right so the input type numerical is um actually pretty neat so if you are doing this kind of stuff do check it out there's a bunch of links that um reference to the dip dives on the specific the input mode for example and the 2fa stuff uh if you are interested do check this one out okay next thing we got here is the tiny tool i just you know it, it's not really uh i wasn't really sure of putting it in libraries and demos or here so i just throw it in here uh it's called worth it modern js edition so the way it works is that you throw in your url right and it will evaluate whether it's worth it for you to split module and no module and basically tell you you know what kind of benefit will you get if you migrate to modern build chain that separates the modern browsers from legacy and how much you're going to win um, if you're building a modern website and you're targeting evergreen websites it's probably not going to help much but if you have a legacy product that um, loads a lot of stuff that uh, probably is not needed in a modern browsers then do try that i've seen some websites win up to like i don't know 50 percent of you know the bundle size by using just that by throwing out the polyfills for legacy browsers which is uh, pretty damn cool so if you are maintaining an older website make sure to check this one out it's actually really really cool and the last thing we got here is a um, new accessibility feature uh, that have been added to the Chrome DevTools that now allows you to simulate vision deficiencies. So you can simulate blurred vision, you can simulate various types of color blindness. And honestly, it looks pretty damn impressive. So if you are working with the websites that should be highly accessible, make sure to check this one out. It seems like it's incredibly helpful. And yeah, it's just like, the fact that you can do that using the dev tools is just amazing to me so there you go okay um that is it for the tips tricks and bit sized awesomeness now we're coming to the releases what is it yeah, i'm not gonna click that right now so we got quite a bunch of them uh starting with the uh, roll up version 2.0 so we got quite a few breaking changes uh the first one being that node 10 is now required but you know node 10 is lts for quite some time so it's, i think that's perfectly reasonable there is now a new file structure for ESM builds and, you know, just a bit changed the naming and stuff like this, which I think is the new ones are a bit nicer. And then they now include Chokidar and they also include, um, there was another thing, the Acorn again, right? So um, I'm basically removing its only external dependencies. Uh, and yeah, it's it looks like a really great release. I still use Rollup for my library and you know smaller projects. I guess it's a great bundler when you don't need 
uh, something as complex as a webpack. I'm not saying that you cannot do complex stuff with rollup. You absolutely can, but just webpack, uh, I guess, is more flexible in this regard. But uh, rollup is, is works amazing when you need something to quickly set up the build chain for the library, for example. I don't think I've ever used it to set up the application build chain, but I know that, for example, Svelte uses it as the primary bundler, right? So it definitely works for apps as well. But anyway, do check it out if you never heard of it. If you already know about it, make sure to update. Um, the breaking changes are, most of them are quite mild and easy to migrate. Uh, so do have a look through that. Okay, next release we got here is Emer version 6.0 which adds the large data sets to a draft, uh, basically adding large data sets to a draft has been optimized. Uh, in, it, it used to have this problem where if you have a really large data set and you try to draft something, uh, it would basically freeze the front ends. I think I encountered this once or twice, but splitting the data, uh, splitting the states would basically fix that. But now it seems like it's been quite optimized and uh, this mostly no longer a problem. Uh, but, and I mean, by large data set, I mean like really large data sets. So like thousands upon thousands of entries. And uh, yeah, it now has compatibility uh, typing support with uh, TypeScript for versions pre 3.7, which I know that was a pain in ass for some people working with it. I personally not, you know, not using TypeScript that much. So that never was uh, much of a problem for me. But you know, if you use TypeScript, that's probably good for you. Right, next release we got here is Next.js version 9.3 with the major highlight being the next generation static side generation. Um, next generation, yeah, you know what. Okay, and it basically allows you to build uh, optimized static websites through new data fetching methods. So it's kind of turns Next.js into basically Gatsby. I mean, obviously you won't have like GraphQL backend and everything, but you can do a setup that is as complex as Gatsby with Next.js tooling right now. They also have added a preview mode that allows you to bypass the statically generated pages to display the drafts from CMS directly, which uh, sounds quite helpful. Um, so again, very similar to what Gatsby does with the development mode. There's also built-in SAS support for global style sheets now, uh, built-in SAS CSS module support for component level styles. So they basically added SAS. And there's the static optimization for 404s and 32 kilobytes smaller runtime, which is bonkers. I think it was like 60 kilobytes or something before that. And now it's half that size basically, which is um, pretty, pretty mind blowing to be honest. And now they have the GitHub discussions uh, enabled so you can actually um, go ahead and use the new GitHub discussions on Next.js repo to talk about, well, anything Next.js related, which is kind of neat. I honestly cannot wait when uh, GitHub will make those uh, publicly available. So there we go. Right, next release we got here is VS Code version 1.43 with quite a lot of quality of life improvements. So the search editors is probably my favorite one. It basically allows you to, um, so if you don't know when you searched in VS Code, it would show the results in this sidebar, which was uh, mildly annoying, but now you can actually use the uh, search editor feature that would basically show the same search results in an editor space. So you can actually properly, you know, overview that without looking at the tiny left sidebar. So that's, that's a great improvement. And there is as usual, a ton of other things, including Linux screen reader support. If that's the thing that you wanted, um, white space on selection display, 
I personally think have enabled the Y-Space display always because it just makes it easier to figure out what's going on. And then there's, yeah, setting sync preview. Yeah, this is one of the things that we've been, uh, a bunch of people have been talking about in the Discord. Uh, so setting syncs uh, has been an extension for VS Code for years now, I think, right? And they are finally adding this as a core feature of the VS Code itself. So you're no longer gonna be needing to install a separate extension to sync your settings across different machines. It's now gonna be part of VS Code and it's already in the Insiders release and gonna be shipped probably in the next uh, major release in March essentially, which is um, really cool. So I'm quite excited about that. I could not live without setting things probably. So there we go. All right, next release we got here is Firefox version 74 that adds a bunch of uh, improvements for, for example, importing your bookmarks and history from the new Microsoft Edge. Um, it now allows you to uh, remove the external applications uh, using add-on managers that were installed by external tools, which I think is the, probably the most frustrating thing ever when you install some third-party app and it adds, a, bonkers like you know annoying extensions to all your browsers and you're just like why where is this coming from there's the uh, improvements to the facebook container so the containers features is probably one of those that i wish the chrome had as well um if you never heard about that the idea is that you can create a new tab that will live in its own isolated container right so this if i open i open this temporary container it doesn't have any of my cookies. It doesn't have any of my credentials. It doesn't have any of my tracking data. It has a completely new ID and it's totally isolated. And as soon as I close this, it will kill the container. So this is the temporary container, but you can create your own containers that are essentially, you know, like for work, for banking, for different Twitter accounts, for Facebook. And they have this Facebook container that automatically isolates Facebook in a separate container. So Facebook cannot track you. Now, uh, sometimes this is this might be a bit annoying, right? Because if the container is isolated and you want to log in somewhere with Facebook, you no longer can, right? Because you have to log in with Facebook in your primary uh, container. Well, now they allow you to whitelist websites where you can use the Facebook login, for example, which um, actually sounds quite damn handy. Again, I'm not using the Facebook container specifically. I'm using the containers extension that allows you to define custom containers for, well, any website and just isolate Facebook using that, which works perfectly fine. But there you go. And um, yeah, I think that's basically the major highlights. There's a bunch of other things. If you're interested, do check out the release notes. And the last release of the week we got here is Node.js version 13.11, bringing us um, the um, sync hook with enter with to ALS, and then an RP release six, as well as um, a bunch of other minor improvements. I don't think there's anything that is like significant basically, but yeah, there's, I think there was like a bunch of regression uh, fixes and other minor improvements that are not uh, notable worthy, I guess. But anyway, if you're living on age, make sure to update because that's always a good idea. All right, that is it for the releases. Now we're coming to the libs and demos. We do have quite a bit of them and uh, it just open all of that. The first one being the speed measure webpack plugin. So if you are, um, you know, care about how long does it take uh, for your webpack to build, then this plugin is for you. It basically allows you to see how fast your plugins and loaders are so you can optimize your build times. 
And yeah, it essentially splits your build and shows you how long each, each plugin took to does it work. So you can actually figure out which ones are slower, where you have your bottlenecks and then change your, either your plugins or your Webpack builds, maybe split it, maybe separate it, maybe make it parallel to make sure that your build doesn't take too long, which uh, sounds quite handy in some cases. So if your build take longer than a couple of minutes, this probably is a good idea to use that plugin to figure out why. Next thing we got here is Stork. It's a uh, fast web search made for static websites. It actually looks really cool. And as you can see here, it's built using Rust. So it's a WebAssembly tool actually. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a search engine that allows you to um, create a list, register it within the um, specific Stork instance, and then just search over it, all of it in the WebAssembly, uh, which looks really neat. Like the Stork search itself as an example here, with a bunch of uh, tools. So you can uh, search for anything. It actually works very fast, um, which is very impressive to be honest, considering the data set here is relatively large. So if you are looking for something like this, do check this one out. I'm thinking maybe I should add this to BXGS website because the version we're using now is re getting relatively slow because we now have a ton of links. Uh, but anyway, there we go. Okay, next thing we got here is script lint, an enforceable script naming standard for package JSON. So it's a package JSON linter that allows you to enforce the naming for your NPM scripts. If you ever, you know, create enough scripts to have the need to enforce their naming, do check this one out. It might be quite helpful. Right, next thing we got here is React Loaders Kit. Um, so you probably heard about loaders kits and there's like a ton of them around. Uh, this one is a wrapper for react. The cool thing is that it uses emotion library. So that means that every loader is a standalone component. It can be imported without any third party CSS or any other files that needs to be included, which means it's going to be quite tiny. So if you are looking for a fancy set of loaders, do check this one out. There's a demo page with all of them. There's quite a lot and uh, some of them look really damn nice. I probably should start using that. You know what? I need to remember that and add it to our current project because the current loader I have is a bit garbage. <laughs> there we go. Okay, next thing we got here is Kosha, colorful shadows for your images. And just exactly as it says, it basically adds fancy shadows that follow the image uh, sides. So there's some obviously uh, JavaScript magic going on in the background but it actually looks really fancy. So if you ever needed to create a fancy, colorful looking shadows for images on your website, again, don't overdo it because it's probably quite CPU intensive. Do check this one out. It actually looks pretty damn nice. Okay, next thing we got here is Hexoid, yet another library from Luke Edwards and yet another library for generating random IDs. Now this one is extremely fast. It's actually faster than the one that we had uh, last time. And it allows you to generate the arbitrary length IDs. Um, yeah, it's, it's basically all it does, right? So it's it's about, uh, what is it? It's 20, 20, 30? Yeah, almost 30 times faster than the UID, which is just insane. So if you really want to generate UIDs very fast, then do check this one out. Okay, next thing we got here is React Table. So this library has been around for a while, but I don't think I've covered it. And they just released the version 7.0 that comes with a nice hooks API. So if you are working with tables in React and you wanted something very complex, then do check this one out. This one is actually really, really cool looking and allows you to do some very 
crazy stuff with tables and the new API is just very nice to use. So there you go. Okay, next library we got here is Dana WebView. Uh, this probably is my favorite one of the week because it really shows off uh, how flexible the idea of, or I guess the architecture of Deno is, right? So this, this thing, uh, this library, uh, and it's a standalone library that you can just import using the simple import close in Deno, right? So there's, there's nothing, you don't, re, you don't need to recompile Deno to use it. It's separate third-party library. So this one uh, has uh, creates a bindings for WebView and allows you to create web-based desktops, uh, desktop UIs, right? So essentially what this does is it adds the web UI to Deno as a simple module that you can import. It's kind of like almost an electron for Deno, but you know, without the need to actually pull in the full browser. And yes, it's work in progress. Like there's a lot of features missing. You still don't have two-way Deno bindings, for example. So you cannot call Deno from JavaScript, but that's something that you can add in the future. But my favorite thing about this is it really showcases how flexible the Deno architecture is because literally all you have to do to import a native module that calls local native web view is just one import command, which is just freaking amazing. I cannot wait for Deno to mature to allow more stuff like this. Like just, this is really cool. So, you know, if you're interested in Deno, if you're curious about the project development, I would like definitely keep an eye on this lib because um, this has a lot of potential to be honest. Like probably if this matures, you probably could throw away the electron and use this and have the better performance and memory footprint just purely because of the way it's built, right? It would be very interesting to see how all of that develops and whether it can actually replace electron in the long run. I mean, long run, meaning, you know, three, four or five years uh, once the Deno matures. Okay, anyway. Continuing, we got Parify, the uh, library that finds balanced matches. So essentially it's, it's a utility library that allows you to uh, quickly find the matching curly braces or round braces or angle braces or template literals or whatever in your source code or text. Honestly, not sure what the use case would be. I guess probably good for parsing something or creating parsers. But then again, you know, there's the parser grammar stuff, but uh, maybe you know the application for that. So do check it out. Maybe that is helpful for you. Right, next thing we got here is Textix, JavaScript text statistics. Um, yeah, the thing is that basically you just throw in some text in it and it counts the lines, words, characters, and spaces for you. Nothing super complex here, but might be helpful if you are working with text a lot. Okay, next thing we got here is Redwood JS, bringing full stack to Gemstack. Uh, so this is essentially an all-in-one, how do you call that? <laughs> They, what? Wait, wait a second. What? I definitely... Oh, there we go. Now it works. Okay. So some of that stuff is a bit broken. Still in alpha, so there's a caveat here. Um, it's a full stack serverless web application framework that allows you to build and deploy Jamstack apps with ease. So yeah, it's it sort of aims to abstract all that's, you know, the every uh, Amazon Web Service Lambdas and all that kind of stuff. So you can focus on basically building the business logic, bundles together React, GraphQL via Apollo, Prisma, Jest, Storybook, Babel, and Webpack, and just lets you write the uh, code for your app. It looks promising, but again, you know, it's still early alpha version. 
and there's like some broken links even on the website so keep that in mind but uh, if that sounds interesting if you are interested in serverless and Jamstack specifically I guess do check this one out maybe this is something that you will like okay next thing we got here is react state selector performance type safe and easier react global state manager yes one more of those it looks interesting so like yeah, it's, you know, it doesn't look too different from most of other solutions. And I'm not sure after trying XState, I would go back to something like this. But uh, probably if the project is small enough, this would be okay. I don't know. Anyway, it's, yeah, it's, I think the title says everything. So if that sounds interesting, do check it out. Right, next thing we got here is CodeSap.js. Uh, new, uh, I guess new because maybe I, because I haven't seen it, but it's a supercharged end-to-end -end testing framework that supports Puppeteer, Selenium, and now Playwright. So you can actually use it with Firefox, Chrome, and well, Selenium allows you to use it with just about anything. What I found cool is the way that they um, did the user-facing APIs. Basically, instead of typing that, you know, whatever, Cypress, click, Cypress, get, whatever, you literally type, I am on the page, I click, I feel field, I click, I see. Which I think is a really interesting way of doing that. And uh, it's really easy to read those tests because they read almost as if, you know, a description. The cool thing about that is that the reports it generate are also based on the commands you write, which also read kind of like the um, description of what basically happened, which is uh, pretty neat. So if you do a lot of end-to-end -end testing and that sounds interesting, do check it out. It seems like a really nice uh, library. Right, next thing we got here is another library from Luke Edwards, a tiny and fast utility for sorting ISO 8601 date strings. So if you're working a lot with date strings and you need to sort them uh, in a fast manner, then do check this one out. Again, it's just freaking, like the, the performance is just insane. I don't know how he does this, but it's just every time. <laughs> so there we go. Okay, next thing we got here is Mutic, a tiny immutable state management library based on Emer. So it's essentially an um, Emer-based store, I guess global state management for React is what I would say, right? So it's uh, your typical using provider to pass the store and then using uh, context to grab that store and uh, work with it from React. Nothing super fancy here. Um, probably would work really good for minor, like small-ish projects. Uh, but then again, if you have something large, Check out XState, it's really good. Right, and the last library we have here for today is FDIR, the fastest directory crawler for Node.js, zero dependencies, grabs 10K files in about 13 milliseconds. So yes, if you need to crawl directories and if you need it to do it really fast with a really large and complex uh, folders, then do check this one out. It's actually, it actually seems to be very damn fast. Like, there's nothing comes even close to that stuff. Like, okay, maybe this RRDR synchronous, but yeah, it's it's still not, not quite as fast. So there you go. Okay, that is it for libs and demos. The last thing I got here for today is this uh, announcement uh, about JavaScript, the first 20 years. So this is a book written by Alan Verse Brock and Brendan Eich. And there is now a preprint available that you can just read for free essentially. And there's a 180 pages of JavaScript history, which is a bit of a bonkers. So uh, yeah, if, if that sounds interesting, if you wanna know the history of JavaScript um, from you know the, basically the guy who created it, 
do check this one out. It's really interesting. I have not read through it yet, but I am planning to do that. Uh, but yeah, you know, the first few pages that I read were pretty damn fascinating. So there you go. Right, uh, that is it from my side. So this was BXJS episode 105. If you guys have any questions or suggestions or libraries you want to share, feel free to throw them into the chat right now. If not, we can just uh, wrap it up here and go have a nice uh, rest of the weekend or rest of the week. Um, as usual, you can find all the mentioned links on GitHub or on bxjs.dev. We have a Discord server. We can join and chat about JavaScript and video games if you want to. There is uh, my Twitter where I post some of the JavaScript stuff and um, just do the typical shit posting. Uh, there is a Telegram channel where I gather all the links I find over the duration of the week. They are unfiltered and contain a lot of links that don't make it to the podcast if you are interested in that kind of stuff. And what else? Do we have anything else? I don't think we have anything else. I think there was. Oh, yeah. If you are interested in just listing this, you can actually listen it on CastBox or on... Uh, no, sorry. That's, that's actually wrong. On Anchor. There we go. Wasn't updated. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's basically it from my side uh yeah um okay let me try to read your username sacred sacred game i guess it's just sacred gaming right <laughs> thank you for your kind words it's really cool to hear uh hey gear uh, hey beerus welcome to the stream you are a bit late because we're wrapping up but you know other than that nothing much <laughs> All right, um, I'll give you a couple more seconds to uh, throw in anything else you want into the chat. Otherwise, we can just uh, wrap it up here. As usual, I am now uh, streaming on YouTube and Twitch. So if you prefer YouTube over Twitch, you can now watch it over there. Um, other than that, yeah, I guess nothing else from my side. So stay safe, guys. Uh, don't get any coronavirus stuff. Uh, I hope you enjoy working from home and I hope your country already switched to that because it makes perfect sense. Thank you guys very much for watching. Uh, thank you for all your kind words. Uh, hope you have an awesome rest of the weekend and awesome rest of the week. Come join Discord to chat and uh, I see you next